three things we'll talk about tonight uh, from this last passage. Um, this kind of life with God, you could call it, this life with God involves alert, praying, strategic living, and winsome speech or persuasive speech. And so why don't you stand up? We'll read the passage and we will wrap up our 13-week tour through this great letter. These are Paul's very last words in this letter before he starts saying his goodbyes. There is some stuff after this in Colossians, but it's literally goodbye so-and-so, goodbye so-and-so, goodbye so-and-so. These are the very last words he says. He calls these Christians in Colossae, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us or the apostles as well so, so that God would open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I also have been imprisoned, that I would make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity, and let your speech always be with grace, just like it was seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Why don't we pray? Jesus, uh, amen to what Rigo said. Amen. We thank you that you, God, when you saw your world break, you flinched, as it were. You did not watch that tragedy, that horrible, unthinkable tragedy happen with indifference. You watched it and you flinched toward your broken creation, toward your image bearers who are now your enemies, toward a world that had turned its back on you, you flinched in love towards that world, not away from it. Jesus becoming one of us, entering our world, our darkness, our chaos, our stuckness, is the greatest proof that you are for us, that you are Emmanuel, you are with us. And not just to encourage us, but to save us, redeem us, put us and your world back together. So tonight, Jesus keep working. Tonight, speak to us, encourage us. Tonight, change us. We ask this in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. The greatest job I ever had was the summer after my freshman year in college. I moved up to Asheville, North Carolina. It's in the Appalachian part of North Carolina, up in the mountains. And I worked at a camp But it wasn't a normal camp like where you have a pond and some horses and an archery course and a lot of little kids who come. Uh, This camp was a construction camp. (laughs) It was a work camp. I see some odd faces in the room. Basically what we would do is youth groups of high school kids from around the southeast would come in for like a week at a time. They would stay at our facility. Um, They'd eat there, sleep there. But every morning, Monday through Friday at 8 a.m., we would break out into little groups of about 15 or 20 people. And some cars would go to this house in Asheville, other cars would go to this house in Asheville. And from 8 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon, every day we would put someone's home back together again, someone who couldn't afford repairing their own house. And most of the projects, we always, every house we worked on, we would paint the whole thing. Most of the houses we worked on, and this was my job as kind of a site manager for re-roofing houses. So we would get up there and rip off like 10 layers of old shingles that had been leaking and just sopped up with water. And we would put a new roof on so that these people's houses wouldn't collapse on top of them. 
we do some yard work, lawn mowing, all that kind of stuff as well. But every morning when I pulled up to the job site with my crew, I noticed this, we would orient people. We'd say, okay, this is Mrs. So-and-so. Everyone say, hi, hi, let's pray with her. And then we'd go say, okay, she needs a new roof. The floor's got to be replaced. She needs some other stuff that's new. And I noticed what happened after that, there was this unspoken assumption that of who got which job. And if you've been on a mission trip, maybe you have felt the pain of this. And I'm not being sexist. I'm saying they were sexist. But ladies, am I right? You always get stuck with a painting, right? Say amen. Amen. And then all the little guys are like, let's get up on the roof and like dangle around the power lines and put new shingles on. And that was the sexy job. That was the cool job. And so that, like the first couple of weeks when crews would come in, that's how it would divvy up. We'd say, okay, here's this job, this job, and this job. Who wants to go up here? All the little guys raise their hand. I'm up on the roof. Let's get up there. And all, everyone else would get stuck with the trimming the bush days or um, painting the same wall for five days. And not surprisingly, I noticed a very dramatic morale difference between the people on the ground and the people on the roof, right? Because the people on the ground are like doing this for their fifth day and they're like, really? Had a paint war three days ago. That was fun. And now I've been bored ever since. And the people up on top of the roof were eating up every second of it. They loved it. Their morale was through the roof. And so, I didn't intend that pun. That was, that was lame humor if I had intended that. Those of you with bad sense of humor just clapped. So, um, Rigo, thank you. Um, so, what we started to do to alleviate this morale problem was rotate people up on the roof. So I'd go down during lunch break or something, I'd come up to someone who had just looked like stone-faced, like they wanted to get out of town, and I said, hey, why don't you come up on the roof the rest of the day after lunch? We'll teach you how to roof a house, teach you how to do the edges and how to, where to put the nail leak and how to work the nail gun and all that kind of stuff, and they would just light up and be like, really? And they'd go up on the roof, and as these people, everybody got rotated, everybody had a little bit of time on the roof, uh, morale of the entire group, uh, shot through the sky. And, um, and every Thursday of the week, we would inevitably get to a point where we would have to stay late to finish the job. Like, you can't leave someone's house half-roofed. So we'd get to Thursday, we'd be like, who can stay late, like all the way up right until dusk in the summertime, like 9 p.m.? Who can stay late to help us finish the project? And we had to, like, tell people, you can't stay. Get in the van and go back, because we can only have so many, because everybody wanted to be there. Because there was such a big morale boost from simply looking at a person, calling them by their name and saying, hey, you want to come up here? And you want to do the real, like the cool job, the real job, the fun job, the hard work? And it made the biggest difference in the world. Now, this is a construction story. It might not resonate with all of you, but you experience this in other areas of your life. Like you're a little kid and big brother, big sister, or this friend you looked up to, they're playing soccer. And you're just sitting over there like eating grass and looking at planes go by. And, and someone calls your name and says, hey, come on and play. So-and-so left. Get on the field. And you look up and you're like, me? Me, coach? And you run out there and your morale shoots through if you perform well. Otherwise, it's horrible. Um, <laughs> but somebody saw you and somebody invited you into the essence or the mission of what they were doing. Or you're alone on a Friday night, you have no plans, you have nothing to do, and someone calls you. 
And you try to act like, oh, well, I had this other stuff going on, but let me see if I can get out of it. And you're like, yeah, I'll be there in five minutes. It, someone saw you, noticed you, and reached their hand out and said, hey, do you want to be a part of the action, the mission, the essence of what we're doing? That is so dignifying when someone does that to you. I saw it on the work site. It, it was so honoring and so validating, so humanizing to those people who felt stuck in a menial job. And it's a big encouragement. So here's my point. Here's why I start out by telling you this story. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is a theological expert. He is unmatched in human history. This is the same Paul who by this point in his life had already traveled by foot half of the civilized world. Thankfully at the time wasn't nearly as big as it is now. But he had, he had literally walked up the Mediterranean coast all the way up into Turkey and and Greece, spreading the message that Jesus is king. And if you're connected to him, you get everything he has. Life, forgiveness, grace, power. He went up and he planted churches all over the place. And now Paul ends his letter to these toddler Christians that he had been praying for in chapter 1. If you remember all the way back August this expert Christian now says to Christians, hey, do you want to come up on the roof with me? He reaches his arm down to people like us, people like you who feel like, what significant role could I possibly have in the kingdom of God? Does he even know my name? Does he even have a job for me? Is there even anything I can contribute to this? And I want to suggest to you that tonight, Paul and Jesus through Paul looks at you, Christian, if you are. We'll talk about it if you're not in a minute. But he looks at you. He calls you by name. He reaches out his arm and he says, hey, do you want to come work with me in my kingdom? This is so obvious. If you grew up in the church, you know, I know I'm supposed to serve. I know I'm supposed to labor for the kingdom, whatever else. But have you ever stopped to just appreciate the patently obvious? Or have you left God's question hanging without an answer when he asks you, hey, do you want to come be a part of what I'm doing? Have you ever answered his question or just assumed it was asked and answered and you're just living your life in some menial job wondering what in the world is the purpose of me in this thing called church or this thing called the family of God? Here's the thing about when, you, when a person becomes a Christian. We've already talked in the past few weeks about how God adopts you into his family. The only way you become a son of God or a daughter of God is if he, through his grace, adopts you. You're not born a son or a daughter of God. We're not all children of God. That's unbiblical. That doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from wishful thinking. The way you become a son or a daughter of God is he adopts you and says you have been abandoned, you have been left, and now you're mine forever. But did you know that when you were adopted into God's family, you don't just get a new father. You don't just get new siblings. You get a whole new family culture. You get a whole new family business. You get a whole new family work. Back in the day, even 100 years ago, every family had a vocation. Some of you have last names that correlate to this. If your last name's Cooper, your family line built barrels. If your last name is I don't know, uh, Smith, your family were blacksmiths. Like People named themselves after what their clan or their tribe did. 
So if that tribe, Miller, thanks Clayton, I saw you wanting attention there. <laughs> Miller's milled stuff. Um, <laughs> if, you, if one of those family, if the Millers adopted you back in the day when they actually milled stuff, guess what your job became on second two of being a member of that family? Hey, here's where we work. You want to come join us? Or here's where we work. Come join us. <laughs> with less of an invitation. But you got the new family business too. You were adopted into that. This is why if you've been a Christian for much length of time, you might not know this, you might know this, but your life becomes about so much more than you and all your tiny, fleeting, fading, trivial pursuits. I spent, still at this point in my life, most of my life spent as a non, not alive, dead to God, running from him, separated from him, not a son, until in college he made me a son. But I can tell you that my life before that moment was about fleeting, stupid little pursuits, chasing little glimmers of hope, little glimmers of happiness that I knew would fade and die, so I'd just wait until the next little thrill came along, and I knew that one would die too, and that one would fade. That experience would be gone by the wayside. I was addicted to this cycle of having to one-up myself every day because I was dead and I had to have all these experiences and circumstances and other stuff to make me alive and it didn't work. But when God adopted me into his family, he adopted me into his family business, which is making everything in this broken world new again, shiny again, clean again, good again, functional again. You, if you're a Christian, have been not just invited into a new family, you have been invited into a whole new mission, a whole new life, a whole new purpose. That's what we mean when we say life is about so much more than just claustrophobic, tiny little you and whatever's on your mind that day. Your life has purpose and context. So, if you heed your father's call to join in the family business, to participate in this thing called the kingdom of God, if you heed his call, if you step into that the way he asks you, I have to warn you, you will bleed. You will be cut. You will get exhausted. You will labor and work day to day under a hot sun. Did Paul not just mention that this very mission, this gospel, is the reason he's in a jail? This isn't the first time Paul's done time. He's done time across the board repeatedly over and over and over again. Every town he goes to and proclaims this resurrected Jesus doesn't sound like he's very powerful because Paul keeps getting put in jail by the authorities. Paul bled for this, sweated for this, worked for this. Just like those kids when they got on the roof were things less comfortable on the roof? Were they more dangerous? Oh, you bet. You've got to watch your step up there. If you slide off, it's painful. Is it hotter? Yeah, there were 100 degree days. My, it was so hot one day, the, the rubber sole of my boot melted off the shoe. And I was like, why am I walking in moccasins? And I looked down and like, the sole of my shoe is stuck to a little tar patch. That's how hot it was on the roof. I bled. The shingles cut you. The, the asphalt grit and it gets into your skin. It cuts you. You look like a coal miner when you're done with the day of roofing. That's the Christian life. That's the family business God has called you into. It's a messy one. It's one where you'll bleed. 
but it's one where your morale will be shooting through the sky eventually as you learn the rhythms and you're about something bigger, something more. You're not on the ground like eating grass and looking at the scars and like doing nothing. You're just, you're up there. You're in the essence of what's happening. You're in the important work. You're in the bullseye of it. If you don't heed or hear God's question to you, will you join me as I rebuild planet earth through my church? If you don't hear or heed that call, you will find the Christian life the most boring, irrelevant, dull, pointless, aimless, disinteresting existence you could imagine. You'll be the person painting the wall Wondering what in the world this is for. Why am I painting this wall? Why does he ask me to do these things? So hear his call. Hear the call to join the family business and to be a part of putting things back together. That's what, guys, if you've been here even a few times in the past 12 or 13 weeks, what's the family business? It's God putting everything back together again through Jesus. Namely, his image bearers. If you're not a Christian, do you know that God's day-to-day purpose is His day-to-day activity in this world is putting people like you back together again, making you alive. Did you know that? Do you feel outside of his purposes? you feel like you're off over here on the side and he's always talking about his people, his people? Do you know that he has called his people to be a blessing to you? Do you know that he has saved his people to come and gather you? Do you know that his eyes aren't just stuck over here, but they're on you too? This is good news. This is what the Bible is bending over backwards to persuade you of and shake you to attention. What's the family business? Paul zooms in to that making everything new stuff. And in this passage, he says, it's to pray in an alert kind of way. He says it's to live in a persuasive way, in a strategic way, and it's to speak in a winsome way. Let's get really practical. What does it look like for you to hear the invitation of God to see his outstretched arm in the midst of your discouragement and say, hey, you want to learn? You want to learn how to be a human being again? You want to learn how to love? You want to learn how to be normal? You want to learn how to have self-control? You want to learn how to love even your enemies? You want to learn how to forgive? You want to learn to have purpose in your job even if your boss is awful? You want to learn how to hope again? You want to learn how to be content in any circumstance? Do you want to learn how to be completely yielded and surrendered surrendered to my purposes. The way that happens is through this praying. That's what specific shape it takes. What do we mean by this? God says, in a sense, prayer is a key way that God invites you into his work. Prayer, in a sense, is the roof. And the other stuff we'll talk about. Prayer is kind of like the come up on the roof, come in to this thing called prayer. If you want to really participate in what the, the, the good stuff of what I'm really doing in the world, it's by praying. And not just praying generically, but specific, a specific kind of prayer. Paul doesn't just say pray. He says, be alert in your prayers. And he says, pray steadfastly. So we need to hang on to those two words because those are the two words that give us something new that we haven't heard before instead of just, oh, I know I'm supposed to pray. Why does Paul say pray with alertness or your eyes open watchfully? Why that adjective put there by that verb? Why? 
Because you can't track God's response to your prayers if you don't know what you're praying for. If your eyes aren't open to see and anticipate and expect him to respond to you. You have to be alert. You have to pray with your eyes open. It's like you pray, you watch. You are on guard. There is a hair trigger on you to expect. This father repeatedly, it's like he just, he, he invites me, he beckons me, he woos me. He even jokes some places to say, pray, praying, pray. Do you know who you have access to? Ask. I'm just amazed how, how much God has to go to the mat to convince us to ask to be connected to infinite power. You'd think we'd want that, but we don't. He says to pray and to be alert, to be anticipating and expecting him to answer. You can't be alert in your prayers. You can't be awake to how God is answering your prayers if your prayers are vague. This is where we get really practical. If your prayers are vague, Lord, help me this semester, how do you know if he's helped you or not? Uh, Lord, be with me when I take this test. How do you know if he was with you or not? Does him being with you mean you getting an A, or does him being with you mean you don't grumble in unbelief and godlessness? Or does him being with you mean you take some time out of studying to help your class? I I don't know. What's an answered prayer? Who knows? Because it was so vague. Lord, help me love my roommate. How do you know when you're loving your roommate? That's a really broad category. The Lord's Prayer, you're saying right now, if you're tracking me, you're like, but Ben, the Lord's Prayer is so vague. Thy will be done. Let your kingdom come. Lead me from temptation. Deliver me from evil. That's so vague. The Lord's Prayer is a template. It's not supposed to be the be-all, end-all of prayer. It's the, hey, this will get you started. It's the training wheels for prayer. So how do you take a vague request like, Lord, let your kingdom come and make it specific? Well, Lord, today, let your kingdom come in my sexuality. Jesus, be a king. Reign over me. Subdue these temptations. Show your power in a place that gets me every day so that the world would know that I would know that I'm alive now. Be a king in this tiny little corner of my life that wreaks so much havoc. Today, be a king. How do you take the vague prayer of let your will be done and make it into a specific, customized, laser-focused prayer that you can actually track how he responds. Well, instead of, Lord, help me love my roommate, Lord, I'm pulling into my condo. I am about to walk up the stairs into my room, and I'm probably about to see a disaster in the kitchen because they didn't do their dishes again. Jesus, I don't want my life to become about being a prosecutor who goes around nitpicking everybody for little infractions. I want to be a lover of these roommates. I want to be a servant to my roommates. So help me, help my, par- help my perspective to change as I'm walking up these stairs. When I get angry, help me to walk out of the room and just re- reorient. And if I need to talk to my roommate because they do this every day, help me to be gracious and offer to help them. You can track that prayer, right? Because you're going to get angry in about three seconds when you open the door. And you can track where Jesus is in that moment. Deliver me from temptation is a very vague and open-ended prayer. How can you track that? We are bombarded with temptations every waking hour. 
The second your brain turns on in the morning, temptation is there waiting to pounce. What if you make that prayer so specific, so concrete, that your prayer becomes, deliver me from the temptation of grumbling, of just always being complaining. God is keeping my heart beating. He keeps putting oxygen in my lungs every time when I take a breath. He's sustaining me. He's giving me sunshine and water and a place to sleep. And I go through my day complaining about everything. Jesus, I know this grieves you. I know this confuses heaven as they watch me, the recipient of every grace, and all I do is complain. Today, Jesus, deliver me from the evil, from the temptation of thinking that I've gotten a raw deal from a God who has gone to the cross for me. This is how our prayers get specific. I had a guy, the guy who mowed the lawn at my seminary for like 30 years. His name was Bob. Bob was the groundskeeper at my seminary. And there's a story about, uh, I heard this from a friend of a friend, but apparently Bob keeps a prayer journal. And he has been for 30 years. And Bob apparently hit the point while I was in seminary where he hit his 10,000th answered prayer that he had recorded in his journal. He numbered them since the 70s. Little stuff. If Bob was talking, he said, hey, Trish, how are you doing today? And you said, well, I, I don't know, like really got the thing going on at my church, whatever else. Bob would be like, okay, I'll pray for you. And Trish would go back to class and be like, yeah, sure, everybody says they'll pray for me. No, Bob went home and Bob prayed for you. And he wrote it down and he tracked you. He'd ask you a few weeks later, how'd that, how'd that situation turn out? And you'd either say it, it turned out for the worse, but you know, the Lord's been faithful, or it turned out great, things worked out really well, and Bob would go home and be like, check, check. Bob had his 10,000th answered prayer that he had been tracking because his prayers were, he was alert. He actually, after he asked God stuff, he actually stuck around long enough to hear his answer. Imagine that. We, we do that with people. You ask me something, you wait for my response. With God, we ask him when we go on, we forget about it. Because we don't really think he has any interest in our request. He has any interest in answering. Bob knew God loves when his sons ask him. And Bob looked and his prayers were specific. What's the fuel for this kind of steadfast prayer? Paul didn't just say be alert in your prayers. He says steadfast. Here's the hard part. Some of you all have been praying for things for a long time. And nothing seems to have changed. Parents' marriage is still hard. Issues with your father or your mother still persist. Temptations, you have prayed your heart out that they would leave you, still jump on you every day. Here is the fuel for steadfast, enduring, everyday kind of prayer. This is convicting for me to say because I would not describe myself as a steadfast prayer. The more, think about this example. The more you get to know me, the more you get to know RUF, the more you're going to know what we're about, what I'm about. And your requests are going to start aligning themselves with what you know this place to be. And so you'll start asking things like, man, I've been around this community for a while. Like, I've really appreciated why they do this or why they do that, that they do these things. Like, you're just saturated in the culture here. You've gotten to know people a little bit better. You know what this place is now. And so you start making out of what you know this place is. And you say, man... We need a group of people who meets up in the morning and just prays, like prays because of everything I'm saying right now. 
you know this place, you know what we're about. The more you know me and what we're about and the people here, the more you know what to ask of and the more yeses to those requests. I'd, I'd, I'd kill if someone would come to me and ask to start a group that prays for their friends here or this campus. We don't have one. I'd kill if people said, you know, uh, these freshmen seem pretty disconnected. What if I jump in the mix and start with them? Would, would you be okay with that? That's a prayer. That's a petition. That's a request. You bet your life I would be. The more aligned you are with the mission here and the more you start making requests out of what you know this place to be, the more I'm going to stop you mid-sentence and say, stop talking. Yes. You know, Jesus says, ask anything in my name and it will be given to you. Some of y'all have prayed that in accordance to like your, your uh, test, your finals. You're like, he didn't answer. He's talking about a mission-shaped prayer. The more you know the Father, the more you know your God, his kingdom, what he's about, you're, you're going to find what you, what you define as a need and a desire is going to completely change. You're going to find your prayers extremely missional and in alignment with what he wants for the world. The more you know my heart for this community, the more you know what to ask me. The more you know God's heart for his world, for this community, for your house, for your parents, the more you know what to ask him in alignment with his mission, and the more you will find him bending over backwards to say, hey, let me stop you right where you are. You bet. You bet. It's when people don't understand this place that they make requests that don't fit this place. People will come in from time to time, and it's fine. Like, never get mad about this, but we say, like, stick around a little bit longer. Learn this place. But they'll come in with requests that are odd for this place. Like, we kind of don't do that. That's not what we're about. The longer you're here, the more you'll know that. But that's, I'm responding to that. I'm answering their prayer, their petition, and I'm saying, that wouldn't be helpful here. But the more you get to know this place, the more you'll know what to ask for. So, what would it mean for you to start praying in alignment with God's mission? Uh, it means you start praying for a heart of compassion towards the other girls you feel like you're in competition with all the time. Start repenting of gossip and drama. Uh, it means that you start speaking up when you hear lies peddled around and nobody stands up and corrects the record. It means you tell the whole truth to people. It means when relational wedges get jammed between you and a roommate or you and an old friend, you initiate forgiveness. You go to them. You pray for courage to go and say, I don't even know if I'm the one that's wrong or you, but I do know I don't want this distance between us. Let's figure this out. That's a mission-shaped prayer that's specific and trackable and alert. What will also fuel your prayer life? Knowing who you're not. Namely, knowing you're not God. What a great realization when that clicks with you. And I think it has to be a thing we relearn every day. Everybody wakes up divine. Everybody wakes up independent, not needing anything from anybody or anything from God. Go about our day doing our thing. When the more you know who you're not, the power you don't have, the control you don't have, the grace you don't have, the compassion for that friend you don't have, the patience you don't have, the more you'll start asking the one who does have it 
to share with you what he has. And the more you know who God is, the more we'll ask him. This is convicting. The reason we don't pray is because we don't believe God is good. The reason we don't pray is because we don't believe God is good. We don't believe he's generous. The more you know who he is, the more you'll ask of him. Annie Johnston Flint, an old poet, wrote this, When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, when the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. The more you know the heart of the Father, the more you'll climb up in his lap and start making big, bold, specific, missional requests. The, other, the last two things on here I want to just hit very quickly, but strategic living Paul calls us to as well when he says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders or those who are not in the family of God making the most of the opportunities you have with them. Let your speech always be with grace as though it's flavored or seasoned with salt, knowing how to respond to each person. Let me ask you this question. There's a few songs you know the lyrics to. Exclude stuff like these Christmas carols. We grew up singing those. But think about the songs on the radio. You know the lyrics to them. How did it come to be that you know the words to the song? Did somebody hand you a a, a Xerox copy of, of just like a poem and say, Hey, you should, this song is awesome. You should read this. It's not how it works. It's always the music that gets you. You're scrolling through the stations and you hear it like, this is awesome. And a lot of time goes by. You're just singing it. You love it. You roll the windows down and it's yours. But then you, you start listening to the lyrics or you go download the lyrics and a whole new realm of that song is opened up to you. And you know them because you love the song first. You love the the music first. God is calling his people to live in such a way that the music of your life makes people stop when they're scrolling through that dial. Walking through campus, going through their class, all your coworkers, they're just scrolling through every day. But with you, they hear a tune that's appealing. This is different. This is kind of catchy. I like this. And they listen and they listen and they listen and they don't care about the lyrics or some gospel you have or whatever you do at RUF or church. But they, they listen to the music, they hear the music, it's pleasing, it's appealing, it's interesting. More often than not, people will start asking, hey, what are the words to that? What are the lyrics? Not when you just put down a piece of paper in front of them and say, hey, you should learn this. The music, the life draws them in. We should be living our lives in a way that begs questions and curiosity from the watching world. Let's do one more story and then wrap this up. Rosaria Butterfield is an old professor of feminism and women's studies at a college in New York, upstate New York. She was a lesbian, and this is kind of 10 years ago, so things have changed a lot in 10 years, but uh, she was just this radical feminist. Her words, not mine or anyone else's. She wrote a book, a memoir. Rosaria Butterfield wrote an op-ed in the 
town just kind of pushing this feminist agenda, pushing this um, lesbian agenda. And uh, a, a letter to the editor came back, or a letter to her came back from a pastor in that town. And she said, I got hundreds of letters. Most of it was hate mail. Most of it was from Christian people who were just, uh, just awful in what they said. But she said, this one guy's letter, I couldn't throw it away. I threw all the others away, but I, I put his next to the trash can. I couldn't bring myself to put it in there. It was the most winsome, thoughtful, nuanced, gracious words I've ever heard from anybody in my circles or not in my circles. I, she couldn't bring herself to throw it away. Five or six months later, she picks his letter up again, and she calls him. She says, hey, I'm, the, I'm Rosaria Butterfield. I'm the lady. He's like, oh, I know who you are. You wrote that, that, that letter in the paper. She said, would you be up for a meeting sometime? Not because she had any intention. of. She was all in in this life she was living. She had a, her wife lived with her in her house. Like She's all in. She's not like, I'm thinking about making a lifestyle change. She called him up to say, I, I, I want to hear more about what you're saying because you're the first thoughtful Christian I've ever encountered. And you didn't throw me under the bus. Like, you honored me. You respected me. I, like, let's just get up and talk. And she was just planning on it being a fact-finding mission to go back and be like, okay, not all people are like bigots and everything. He ends up, they, they have a great conversation. He's like, hey, me and my wife would love to have you over for dinner sometime. I would love for you to meet her. She's great. You can bring your, bring your partner if you want to. So she, she's like, she just found herself doing stuff. She's like, I don't know. I just feel, see my feet walking into his house. And I'm like, why am I doing this? This is crazy. This is nuts. So they have dinner a few times, and that turns into like a weekly dinner. They have a standing appointment, dinner at the at a pastor's house with his wife every week. And slowly over time, she began to just, their relationship with Jesus, their humility and owning and being honest about their own shame and regret and brokenness and struggle and sin, their carefulness with her, their gentleness with her, their refusal to treat her like a confused her. Who are you? She asked about the lyrics. The music drew her in, and she wanted to know the lyrics. She was converted. This is the woman, if you've heard her name, who now tours college campuses all over America, winsomely, patiently, lovingly, pleading with people, you are not your sexual temptation. You are an image bearer of the living God. Don't let the same culture who stigmatized these people 40 years ago now turn around and say, now we're for you. Saying you, you were made for something so beautiful and so good and so dignified. You were made for life. You were made for this God. Rosaria Butterfield's life turned around. I know they prayed for her. Specific missional prayers. And I know Jesus heard it. And I know she prays now that Jesus would do similar things to other people. And I know he answers that prayer too. Many in the room are the evidence of that. Friends, this is, that story is how all these pieces come together. Paul is saying, do you want that? Or do you want your life to be about going to class, running home, video games, Netflix, bedtime, wake up, do it all over again? Do you want to keep painting the wall over and over again or do you want to get up on the roof and join the living God, remake planet Earth through his church? That's the question. Even if you're not his son or his daughter, the invitation comes to you. Do you 
want to be a part of this? Do you want to be mine? You can answer. You don't have to wait anymore. You don't have to put that off. You don't have to suppress that. You don't have to ignore him any longer. What are you waiting for? Lord Jesus, we pray that you, even over the next few weeks, would speak to us, persuade us, get our attention, that you love to be with your people. You love for us to be on the roof with you, rebuilding the earth one confession at a time. One, will you forgive me at a time. One, I want to get to know you better at a time. One, hi, my name is Is this your first night at a time? Something inside of us was made for this huge mission. And we know we want it. But so many obstacles stand in between us and the roof. So we pray, Jesus, a specific, tangible, concrete prayer right now that we know is in alignment with your mission. Remove the obstacles. Come off the roof to where we are on the ground and carry us up. Do it for specific people tonight. We pray in your name. Amen.